0: Out there in dreamland. Namaste, assalamualaikum. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning into another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texas broadcast by Tex. I am Tex, and I am going to be broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. It is my pride and privilege to be doing so. So thank each and every one of you listeners, new and old. This is your first episode. This is your 500th episode. Thank you very, very much. Sincerely for the time that you're giving me. to Listen to me. It's information I have to present. The best way to support the channel is to listen to as many episodes as you can while you can. Currently, I have made the... Vast majority of them, over 477, are free episodes to listen to. I am re-uploading classics from the archives every day, as well as the new episodes I upload four times a week. You can find the brand new original episodes for free on www.podpage.com slash texas We've changed the web address, Beyond Top Secret Texas. You can also Google search Beyond Top Secret Texas Broadcast, and it'll bring you to the pod page website on, you know, whatever search engine you're using. Those are the original brand new episodes that are uploaded four times a week. They are free to listen to on the pod page. They are also going to be uploaded to Spotify, iTunes, um, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., all that Breaker a Rhapsonic, uh, all that. Now, I'm also uploading classic episodes, old episodes from the archives every day for the full year of 2024. I will be uploading every day from the archives through Spotify, um, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all the podcast platforms like that. They won't appear on the podpage.com slash Texas website. That's only for the new and original episodes. But archives and classics will be published every day, uploaded every day, to keep them fresh, to keep them in your face, to keep them uh, relevant. Because just because they're a year or two years old, the subject matter is extremely important. So the best way to support this channel, to educate yourself, is to listen to as many of the archived episodes as you can. There are 577 episodes in total, 477 of which are free. The others being interviews on other shows with other people, conversations, etc. throughout my career. Thank you all very much. And all I ask is that you listen to those episodes because that helps me tremendously, no matter how old they are. Search in the subject matter with Beyond Top Secret Texas, uh, you know, and the keywords, and absolutely see what comes up. I've talked about everything from extraterrestrial life to military conspiracies to the occult societies to um, true crime, uh, various subjects uh, regarding Texas specific conspiracy theories, and. Um, You know, the news, uh, breaking events, etc. We've been having this show since 2020. We really hit our stride and became the Beyond Top Secret Texan broadcast in 2021. And we have just taken off like a fucking rocket into the upper stratosphere in 2022 and 2023. And thank each and every one of you for coming aboard and flying as high as we can together. So, yeah, let's get into it. It's a very serious subject. I know it's December. I know people are in that, as we've already discussed, Saturnalian mindset. But remember, December is a time for remembering the dead, for remembering the past. Lest we are doomed to repeat it in the afterlife. We've already discussed on our Hecate Xmas episode the importance of ghost stories, of remembering tragedies and horrifying truth during the time of December. There can be no more horrible truth and no more distressing of a ghost story than the ones I will share with you now. They are real tragedies. They are war crimes, war crimes committed by the nations of this world and their armies of men that carry out their will with violence. War crimes are defined by the United Nations. violations of international human law, treaty, or customary law that incur individual criminal responsibility under said international law. As a result, and in contrast to the crimes of genocide and the crimes against humanity, war crimes must take place in the context of an armed conflict, either international or non-international War Crimes mean the grave breaches of Geneva Conventions of the 12th August 1949, retroactively or proactively into the future. Namely, one of the following acts against persons or property protected under the provisions of the relevant Geneva Convention. 1. Willful killing, not killing out of defense or mission. 2. Torture or inhumane treatment, including biological experiments. 3. Willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health. 4. Extensive destruction or appropriation of personal property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. 5. Compelling a prisoner of war or other protected persons to serve in the forces of a hostile power. 6. Willfully depriving a prisoner of war or other protected persons of the rights of fair and regular trial. 7. Unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement. 8. Taking of hostages. Other serious violations of the law and customs applicable in international armed conflict within the established framework of international law, namely any of the following acts, are, including and not limited to, Intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population, as such, are against individual civilians not taking direct part in hostilities, such as in assassination programs. 2. Intentionally directing attacks against civilian objects, that is, objects which are not military objectives, such as civilian housing. 3. Intentionally directing attacks against personnel, installations, material, units, or vehicles involved in humanitarian assistance or peacekeeping missions in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, as long as they are entitled to the protection given to civilians or civilian objects under the international law of armed conflict, such as bombing Red Cross ambulances or Red Crescent ambulances or civilian hospitals or military hospitals. 4. Intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attacks will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term or severe damage to the natural environment, which will be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. This is blowing up dams. This is blowing up and poisoning crops, orchards, etc. Livestock. What have you but naturally and economically dependent resources. 5. Attacking or bombarding by whatever means, towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings which are undefended and which have, have no military objectives. 6. Killing or wounding a combatant who have laid down his arms and have no longer means of defense has surrendered at their own discretion. 7. Making improper use of flag of truce or the flag of the military insignia or uniform of the enemy or the United Nations as well as the distinctive emblems of the Geneva Convention resulting in death or serious personal injury. 8. The transfer directly or indirectly by the occupying powers of parts of its own civilian population to the territory it occupies or the deportation or transfer of all of the parts of the population of the occupied territory within or outside the territory. 9. Intentionally directing attacks against buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, or charitable purpose. Historic monuments, hospitals, and places where the sick and wounded are collected, provided they are not military objectives. 10. Subjecting persons who are in the power of adverse parties to physical mutilation or to a medical or scientific experimentation of any kind, which are neither justified by the medical, dental, or hospital treatment of the person concerned, nor carried in his or her best interest, in which cause death to or seriously endanger the health of such persons or persons. 11. Killing or wounding treacherously individuals belonging to the hostile nation or army. 12. Declaring that no quarter will be given. 13. Destroying or seizing the enemy's property unless such destruction or seizure will be imperative demanded by the necessities of war. 14. Declaring abolished, suspended, or inadmissible in a court of law the rights and actions of the nationals of the hostile party. 15. Compelling the nationals of the hostile party to take part in the operations of war directed against their own countrymen, even if they were in a belligerent surface before the commencement of the war. Sixteen, pillaging a town or place even when taken by assault. Seventeen, employing poison or poisoned weapons. Eighteen, employing asphyxiation, poisonous or other gases, and all analogous liquids, materials, or devices of delivery. Nineteen. Employing bullets which expand or flatten easily in the human body, such as bullets with a hard envelope which does not entirely cover the core or is pierced with incisions. 20. Employing weapons, projectiles, and material that methods of warfare which are of nature cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering or which are inherently indiscriminate in violation of the international law of armed conflict. Provided that such weapons, projectiles, and material and methods of warfare are the subject of a comprehensive prohibition and are included in an annex to the statute by an amendment in accordance with the relevant provisions set forth in Articles 121 and 123. 21. Committing Outrages uh, outrageous Upon Personal Dignity in Particular Humiliating and Degrading Treatment. 22. Committing rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy as defined in Article 7, Paragraph 2. Enforced sterilization or any other form of sexual violence, also constituting a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. 23. Utilizing the presence of civilians or other protected persons to render certain points, areas, or military forces immune from military operations. 24. Intentionally directing attacks against buildings, material, medical units, and transport and personnel, using the distinctive emblems of the Geneva Conventions in conformity with international law. 25. Intentionally using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare by deprivation, depriving them of objects indispensable to their survival, including willful impeding relief supplies as provided for under the Geneva Conventions. <coughs> 26. Conscripting or enlisting children under the age of 15 years into the National Armed Forces or using them to participate actively in hostilities. In the case of armed conflicts, not of an international character, serious violations of Article 3 common to the four Geneva Conventions of 12 August 1949, namely any of the following acts committed against persons taking no active part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their arms and those placed or in combat by sickness, wounds, detention, or any other cause. 1. Violence to life and person, in particular murder of all kinds, mutilation, cruel treatment, and torture. 2. Committing outrageous upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment. 3. Taking hostages. 4. The passing of sentences and the carrying out of executions without previous judgment pronounced by regular constituted court, affording all judicial guarantees which are generally recognized as indispensable. Other serious violations of laws and customs applicable in armed conflicts not of an international character within the established framework of international law, namely any of the following acts included. Intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population, such as an individual civilian not taking direct part in hostilities, are fleeing. Intentionally directing attacks against buildings, material, medical units, are transport and personnel using distinctive emblems of the Geneva Conventions in conformity with international law. Intentionally directing attacks against personnel, installations, material units, or vehicles involved in humanitarian assistance or peacekeeping missions in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations as long as they are entitled to the protection given to civilians or civilian objects under the international law of armed conflicts. Intentionally directing attacks against buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, or charitable purposes. Historic monuments, hospitals, and places where the sick and wounded are collected, provided they are not military objectives. Pillaging a town or place even when taken by assault. Committing rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy, as defined in Article 7, Paragraph 2, enforced sterilization, and any other form of sexual violence, also constituting a serious violation of Article 3 common to the four Geneva Conventions. And 7. Conscripting or enlisting children under the age of 15 years into armed forces or groups or using them to participate actively in hostilities. 8. Ordering the displacement of the civilian population for reasons related to the conflict, unless the security of the civilians involved or imperative military reasons so demand. 9. Killing or wounding treacherously a combatant adversary. 10. Declaring that no quarter will be given. 11. Subjecting persons who are in the power of another party to conflict to physically mutilate or to a medical or scientific experimentation of any kind, which are neither justified by the medical, dental, or hospital treatment of the persons concerned or carried out with his or her interests. And destroying the season, the property of an adversary, unless such destructive or seizure by imperative, demanded by necessities of conflicts. War crimes are those violations of international humanitarian law that incur individual criminal responsibility under international law. Some examples of prohibitive acts include murder, mutilation, cruel treatment and torture, taking of hostages, internationally directing attacks, or intentionally directing attacks against civilians, buildings dedicated to religion and education, etc., pillaging, rape, sexual slavery, forced pregnancy, or any other form of sexual violence, such as forced prostitution, conscripting or enlisting children as child soldiers under the age of 15 years into armed forces or groups and using them to participate actively in hostilities. War crimes contain two main elements. A contextual element, the conduct took place in the context and it was associated with an international, non-international armed conflict. And two, a mental element, intent and knowledge both with regards to the individual act and the contextual elements of ordering it. In contrast to genocide and crimes against humanity, war crimes can be committed against the diversity of victims, either combatants or non-combatants, depending on the type of crime. In international armed conflicts, victims included wounded and sick members of armed forces in the field and at sea, prisoners of war, and civilian persons in refugee camps. In the case of non-international armed conflicts, protection is afforded to persons taking no active part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their arms in those placed or to combat by sickness, wounds, detention, or any other cause. In both types of conflicts, protections are also afforded to medical and religious personnel exempt, such as non-combatants, uh, you know, religious minority groups, etc., like Buddhists uh, who happen to live there who are worshipping in temples, etc., and treating them as non-combatants. Humanitarian workers and civil defense staff, and this is from the United Nations website. That being said, I will include, because only the December, only the December cases because I wanted this to be themed, Um, I could go and speak for years, episodes, every day, for years examining the multitude and almost innumerable amount of war crimes or things that would qualify as war crimes um, in the ancient world, in history, in present modern history, in the 20th century, up until the 21st century, right? And they just seemed to be actually... um, now uh, a subject of focus and an attempt to police and to prevent. But before, they were considered just part of reality in terms of um, what militaries were for and what militaries did to other people's uh, innocent population, cities, etc. That armies were specifically just the, the organized gangs of looters, rapists, and vandals, Uh, from your kingdom, uh, you know, targeted and sent to fight in someone else's kingdom so that they didn't do that same shit to you, you know, in time. And so that's literally what it seems like to me. um, The evolution of the armies into at least this real political uh, discourse, but never really has moved away from that. You know, at least in honesty, it's it's still that, but a lot more... um, A lot more visible due to the policing and the watchdogging of anti-war activists, organizations, and uh, politicians who, in all fairness, owe themselves to the capitalist world class that wishes to keep uh, business alive, but also uh, create, in its own secular image, a type of religion based on charity that may absolutely be toothless and unable to prevent war crimes, but may symbolically choose to uh, pursue investigating and publicly decrying them, uh, you know, be basically unable to prevent the crime, but at least symbolically serving as someone to investigate, to, um, you know, to to seek punishments for, like in the terms of Slobodan and or and Kony, or in several of the African uh, warlords, this idea that, <clears throat> that people just can't get away with it, and it's not just a moment in history. And I will uh, begin with uh, some historical context when I go into the third-party public domain archival information. And I will begin with an old 1950s cartoon ...called Goodwill to Men... ...that was an anti-war creation... ...by MGM... ...not Disney... ...MGM... ...and... um, ...speaks about the... ...psychological scarring... ...of the early 21st... ...or 20th century's... uh, ...warfare... ...specifically that of World War I... ...into World War II and into the nuclear Cold War, the atomic, the atomic weapon Cold War. Um, and you, you will get to see how different that state of mind is when they saw that militaries of the world were specifically for the annihilation and total destruction of civilian populations of your enemy. And that was in the 1950s. That was 70 years ago. And within one lifetime, it has improved to the point that it's now about the... It's now about the brazen um, slaughter of innocence. yes, but also the massive unpopularity and political response given at all levels of society against those guilty of that behavior. I don't want to make this episode too personal or political. But this December, December 2023, there are currently war crimes going on. There are war crimes being committed right now against the real people, civilian populations that fit all of those criteria, including the suffering of ill dignities, the torture of uh, hostages, the taking of hostages, use of... um, chemical weapons, delivery, destruction of the civilian infrastructure, destruction of civilians seeking refuge, non-combatants, um, even the even the killing of people who surrendered under uh, mistaken identity, etc. And that is happening in the Middle East, in Palestine, and in Gaza by the occupying Zionist entity. Absolutely, that's happening. Absolutely, Israel is committing war crimes. Israel has been committing war crimes since the retaliation strikes from the events of October 7th. Now, you could easily say, well, Hamas also guilty of war crimes by that definition, until I read you this caveat. And it says that under an illegal occupying regime... A native population is allowed to take any, any military action to free themselves, as long as the conditions are met for the forced discrimination, persecution. and subjugation unlawfully of those people. That means, and that was written in the UN Geneva Convention during the War of Vietnam and the colonial liberation or the African liberation from colonial powers in the Biafra. This is because we've already gone through the terrible wars of independence that produced the hundreds of nations we currently have, that many of them are in the United Nations, that fought for their independence against typically British rule, which is hilariously Israel's creator, the British, the Rothschilds, And who in their own colonization, the British colonization of Africa, the British colonization against the aboriginal Australians, the British colonization against uh, uh, Caribbean, Jamaicans, um, American, Indians, etc., resorted to concentration camp type behavior, discrimination, genocide, war crimes, attacking livestock, destruction of ways of life, destruction of resources, etc., full scorched earth type policies. And it wasn't until their creation of the concentration camp model to fight their Dutch enemies, the African Boer, that even the UN itself had to be fucking formed in the League of Nations and shit. Because that was on the horizon where people were wholesale slaughtering through these severely inhumane ways. Civilian hostage populations that they would call um, their enemies. And this is what, say, for example, during Vietnam, the U.S. Army would target and destroy civilian villages, civilians mass wholesale. This is not controversial. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is My Lai Massacre. This is uh, napalming children in villages. This is the uh, shooting of people suspected of being spies, etc., This is the destruction of farms, killing of uh, water buffaloes, for example, destruction of rice paddies. Agent Orange to defoliate tropical fruit orchards, etc. Burning of they they would destroy rice stores and shit like that. Anyone who stored rice. They would destroy it because they would say it was going to give it into the enemy. So no one could actually have a store of rice in case of any kind of hardship. So a lot of famine, a lot of starvation, a lot of sickness, etc. And that was directly because of American war crimes against the civilian population due to um, their occupation of it and everything. And that was written into the UN books because of that, as well as South America, etc. That if a small minority of foreigners is occupying a native land, that that native freedom resistance fighters can resort to any behavior because it's already unequal. And that's 100% why Hamas is not committing war crimes. Why the Palestinian people are not guilty of war crimes. But Israel, with its e- U.S. supporters, with the aircraft carriers sitting in the Red Sea, with the mercenaries from the NATO-backed nations, the EU-backed nations, being sent there to fight against innocents, uh and children the munitions which are given to them from the West, the billions of dollars which are given to them from the West, all of it created since 1949 as an illegal colony, as literally an unsinkable aircraft carrier, as it's been called by the USA and the British Western capitalist traditions against the ever more independent and independence-minded Middle Eastern people, specifically the Palestinians, the Arabs, etc., and choosing the Palestinian people as the weakest link because of their peaceful, shepherdic attitudes. It was a war crime since 1949. It's been a war crime since 1947. It's been 75 years of an active war crime. 75 Decembers of a war crime. But from that, I'll bring uh, third-party information about World War One. the most famous incident in December, for example, being the Christmas Truce, which was absolutely a propaganda fabrication. Yes, there was a Christmas Truce, but to think of it as some kind of monumental humanitarian moment where people laid down their arms and celebrated Christmas goodwill to men, and then the next day fucking murdered each other uh, as anything other than uh, proof of a European madness and an absolute insanity. Um, but also the reality that the British were firing their guns when that was happening. And it was only one small stretch of tens of thousands of men in trenches. One small stretch did that that was very isolated and very far off of uh, central command and it was not approved by the officers it was not approved by anyone it was a working class enlisted person uh, bottom of the ranks privates you know et cetera, things like that like you know the grunts basically rebelling having a mutiny against the madness because uh, they didn't have anything personally against the men they were fighting they didn't care if they were German or French or not. They didn't hate these men. They were forced to fight as an army of slaves and a monarchy. They had a monarch and none of those men who fought in World War I could vote for any kind of change in their government system. It was not a battle between democracy and freedom. It was a battle between kings that were all related to each other. They were Habsburgs. Everything from the Tsar to the Kaiser to the King of England were cousins. To so we'll get through the Christmas truce, just to kind of include it. Because World War I itself was a war crime, I believe. If it was fought between men and not just the giant... First cover story for our first battle against the subterranean crypto terrestrial species that just happened to live right below our feet. Thank God for chlorine gas, flamethrowers, and machine guns. That gave that gave the Europeans the courage to finally stand up to some goat. ...footed, horned assholes who come and take children during the lean winter months. That's exactly what that breaks down to. I always have a theory that in World War I it was actually fought against a crypto-terrestrial species... ...that was basically these giant, long-clawed, uh, hoof-footed, ungulot humanoids... ...that were basically chased down into the cave systems by our ancestors... And uh, became the Krampuses and the Satyrs and the Goatmen, the trolls of our legends. And they are basically just as intelligent as human beings, but live in a feudal system, uh, medieval type system at best. uh, With their technologies being, yes, they can forge steel, they can create things like that. But they're more into tricks of the mind, poisons um Hallucinogens, psionics—you know, like mind game shit—and basically, after we got through the Industrial Revolution, we were like, "Fuck! We got planes, we got bombs, we got napalm, we got chemical weapons, we got machine guns, we got armor. We can we can supply a million-man army with fucking rifles, body armor, helmets." Uh, boots. Let's do this. Let's go down there. Let's go down to the catacombs. Let's go down through the Pyrenees. Let's go down to the Alps. Let's go down through the Caucasus and the Transnestrias and all that shit. Let's go down to where all these catacombs are and kick these motherfuckers' asses. And they did. And it took four years and the lives of nine million human beings But they, you know, basically pushed these people back, and in the 20th century there was no great cult, there was no great purge, there was no great taking of children, as there had been during the times of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, as there had been to build the legends of the Krampus in the Germanic areas, of these horned black figures who would come and take your children And had been doing so since that time began. Why do you think there are millions and millions of human skeletons under Paris? And under uh, Kiev? And under um, uh, the Oslo and shit like that? Out there. I know I thought. And that's why still the Parisians... Forbid the exploration of these catacombs. Because I can't guarantee your safety. For these beings still can patrol. This is where we get the werewolf legends. This is where we get the vampire legends. This is where we get the the devil legends. But I digress. We have enough to talk about with the real war crimes that happened in December. And while War I may be a war crime itself, we'll jump into World War II. And while many, many war crimes happened uh, from both sides in World War II, I want to focus on the more obscure Pacific theater. Obscure because the Japanese have enjoyed a lot of revisionism and a lot of acceptance culturally where the Germans have received nothing but infamy and in fact can never escape their past. The Japanese seem to deny it completely along with the rest of the world, specifically America. First war crime of all time occurred in December.
1: 1937,
0: December. I will include a third party source so that you don't have to hear it from me. And me alone. But basically... What happened in Nanking is called the Rape of Nanking for a reason. It was a military operation where Japanese troops descended on the capital of China, Nanking at the time. In December of 1937 and stayed looting until March of 1938. In that time, somewhere between 200,000 to 300,000 prisoners of war and civilians were slaughtered, and somewhere in the range of 80,000 women and girls were raped, tortured, mutilated, and otherwise defiled. This is all documented in photographs and movies, and has been written about extensively by the survivors, their families, foreigners... Of which there were many, many foreigners who were there internationally for business or for observations of the events and their families, children, wives, spouses, servants, etc., from Britain, from all European nations, and from America. They survived, witnessed the bulk of the slaughter. Some were captured themselves. Many women, for example, of Western origin who had gone to the Far East to work in Western offices such as embassies, banks, international trade houses, etc. were captured and enforced into prostitution and things called joy clubs or joy divisions, sorry joy divisions, these joy divisions were forced bordellos and brothels where Japanese officers by the hundreds would cycle in for their chance to have sex with western women. The Japanese have never accepted responsibility or apologized for this absolutely confirmable fact in World War II. You can look that shit up too. Let alone what happened specifically in this case. There are photos, hundreds of them, by, of the bodies they piled up. This includes piles of Infants piles of children, piles of elderly, etc. Because being Japanese, they were very organized. There are photos of samurai sword-wielding officers practicing decapitating the heads of dozens of Chinese civilians. Some would say simply out of boredom. There is one thing, even throughout all the severities of violence, death, and misery that are documented, that is the lack of wild animals and dogs, because the Japanese killed and ate them all. probably the most famous and accurately horrible photograph of the rape of nanking is that of a small girl probably between the ages of 3 and 6 years old who the photograph photographer covered her upper body and face for her dignity but left the rest of the photo ...as it was found... ...or well, that's the scene as it was found for the photograph... ...of her having been... ...raped, spread-legged... and ...with an arrow shot into her pubic region. A fucking arrow... So include third-party accounts of the rape of Nanking. Just so you don't have to always listen to my word, for it. There's also the St. Stephen's College Massacre. As I've said before about the rape and killing of Western women, specifically Western nurses. I've included a third-party source there, but just to describe it. On the 25th of December, 1941, Christmas Day, during the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong at St. Stephen's College, the Imperial Japanese Army, entered St. Stephen's College only hours before the British surrendered on Christmas at the end of the Battle of Hong Kong. This was being used as a hospital of the front lines. The Japanese were met by two doctors, Dr. Black and Dr. Whitney, who were marched away and later found dead and mutilated in nearby forests. They then burst into the wards and bayoneted a number of British, Canadian, and Indian wounded soldiers who were incapable of hiding or fighting. The survivors and their nurses were imprisoned in two rooms upstairs. Later, a second wave of Japanese troops arrived after the fighting had moved further south away from the school. They removed two Canadians from one of the rooms and mutilated and killed them outside. Many of the nurses next door were then dragged off to be gang raped and later found mutilated and murdered. The following morning after the surrender the Japanese ordered that all bodies should be cremated just outside of the college. Other soldiers who had died in the defense of Stanley were burned with those killed in the massacre making well over 100 charred corpses cremated in the aftermath. They were all buried in an unmarked grave that would later become the Stanley Prison Civilian Internment Camp. Lieutenant General Takayo Ito, the commander of the 38th Infantry Division during the incident, was found responsible for the atrocity committed by the unit. He was found guilty on the military court for the trial of war criminals of 1948 and sentenced to 12 years of imprisonment only. Meaning he was released from prison for this massacre in 1960. It included third-party documentation of that as well. Moving over to the European Front of World War II. On the 16th of December, 1944, the Malmedy Massacre began and was carried out to the 25th of January, 1945. The Malmedy Massacre was a German war crime committed by soldiers of the Waffen-SS on the 17th of December 1944 on the Bognese Crossroads near the city of Malmedy, Belgium, during the Battle of the Bulge. Sagittles, soldiers of the Kampfgruppe Piper summarily killed 84 U.S. Army prisoners of war who had surrendered after a brief battle. The Waffen-SS soldiers had grouped the U.S. POWs in a farmer's field where they used machine guns to shoot and kill the grouped POWs. The prisoners of war who survived the gunfire of the massacres then were killed with a coup de grace gunshot to the head. These men of the 285th Field Artillery Observation Battalion would later be included with hundreds of other U.S. prisoners of war from various other units. And the massacre would then be considered one continuous, almost month long massacre. Besides the summer execution of 84 U.S. prisoners of war at the Farmers' Field, the term Malmedy Massacre also includes other Waffen SS massacres of civilians and POWs in Belgian villages and towns in the time of their first massacre of the U.S. POWs of Malmedy, since it was almost unceasing. The trial. For this war crime was part of the Dachau trials in nineteen forty five to nineteen forty seven. Basically, long story short. At 4.30 a.m., the 1st SS Panzer Division was approximately 16 hours behind schedule of their convoys, decided to take a shortcut, ran into a small village of Bulingjil with 84 U.S. paratroopers in the Forward Observation Battalion there. Small firefight, the Americans surrendered knowing that they were not a match to the armored divisions of the SS. The U.S. Army convoy only had 30 vehicles, for example. After their brief battle with the American convoy, the tanks and armored vehicles of the Comfrugan Piper convoy continued westward to Luganville, while at the Big Nose Crossroads, the F and SN infantry assembled, the just surrendered U.S. POWs in a farmer's field, adding them to another group of U.S. POWs, soldiers who had been captured earlier that day. The prisoners of war who survived the massacres of Almeida said that a group of approximately 120 U.S. POWs stood at the farmer's field with the Waffen-SS fired machine guns at the grouped POWs. Panicked by the machine gun fire, some POWs ran and fled the field, but the Waffen-SS soldiers shot and killed most of the grouped POWs where they stood, and some G.I.s had dropped to the ground and pretended to be Jed. Nonetheless, after the initial machine gunning of the group of POWs, the Waffen-SS soldiers walked amongst the POW corpses searching for wounded soldiers to kill with a crew de gras shot gun to the head. Moreover, some of the POWs who fled the farmer's field had ran to and hidden in a cafe at the Bugness crossroads. The Waffen SS then set the cafe afire and killed every US POW who escaped the burning building. A few of the POWs had survived the Malmedy Massacre, hiding amongst the corpses, until the Waffen SS had left and then sought help and medical aid in the nearby city of Malmedy, which was held by the U.S. Army. The first of the 43 survivors of the massacre were encountered by a patrol in the 291st Combat Engineer Battalion at 2.30 p.m. on the 17th of December, hours after the massacre. The Inspector General of the First Army learned of the Malmedy Massacre approximately four hours of the fact by evening time. Rumors that the often FS were summarily executing US, executing U.S. POWs had been communicated to the rank-and-file soldiers of the U.S. Army in Europe. Unofficial orders spread to not take any SS men prisoner. American soldiers of the 11th Armored Division laterally summarily executed 80 war POWs in the Chinon Massacre on the 1st January 1945 directly because of this order. It wasn't until the 13th of January 1945 that the corpses of the U.S. Army soldiers Including the 84 executed U.S. prisoners of war, were recovered during the Ardennes counteroffensive that liberated the crossroads of Bognis, Belgium, from Nazi occupation. By that point, they had been frozen and snow covered, and they were removed for autopsy and burial. Forensic investigations documented the gunshot wounds for the war crimes, prosecutions of the enemy officers and soldiers who killed the surrendered U.S. POWs. 20 of the 84 corpses the soldiers murdered as POWs had gunpowder burns residue on their heads, indicating a crew de gras shot upon the head, a wound not sustained in self-defense. Corpses of 20 soldiers showed evidence of small caliber gunshot wounds to the head without residue of a gunpowder burn. With other POW corpses had one wound to the head, either in the temple or behind an ear and 10 corpses showed fatal blunt trauma injuries to the head from having been hit repeatedly, hit with a rifle butt, until breaking the bones of the skull. The crew de Gras gunshot wounds to the head were additionally to the bullet wounds made by machine guns. Most of the US POW corpses were recovered from a small area in a farmer's field, indicating that the Germans grouped the US POWs to shoot them dead. The ultimate number decided... For the combined number of United States prisoners of war killed during the Malmedy Massacre are put between 300 and 375 U.S. soldiers and 111 civilians executed by the Kumpfgrouper paper. Waffen-SS So that is a lesser-known war crime that happened in World War II. Now we'll be moving into Korea. Jumping forward to include the Korean War. December massacres. These are obscure in the Americas but they are infamous in the Koreas and in the Eastern Asian world, Pacific world. Zimper massacres were a series of politically motivated executions carried out by the South Korean governments following the recapture of Pyongyang by communist forces in the Korean War. The killings took place in South Korea, but mainly in and around Seoul. It is believed that South Korean governments executed thousands of people. However, accurate estimates are difficult to come by. The Ri regime received criticism from the international community and the executions damaged the image of South Korea. The Ri regime reacted brutally to the fall of Pyongyang and the regime cracked down brutally on alleged communists following the fall of the city. Following the fall of Pyongyang, mass executions and arrests of communists became commonplace and this was not the first time either side had executed alleged supporters of their political opposition, as throughout the war planned executions were a fairly common occurrence, though usually on smaller, more isolated scales. In October, the London Times reported that nearly 300 men and women were detained and beaten with rifle butts and bamboo sticks. Other practices including inserting bamboo splinters under fingernails or toenails as a torture method and mass shootings in public spaces. On Friday, December 15th, December or Friday, yeah, December 15th, 1950, British and American troops witnessed the execution of over 800 political prisoners in the outskirts of Seoul. Reports included truckloads of prisoners including women and children being unloaded and executed in the trenches where they were to be buried. Five riflemen did the shooting, with the executions beginning at 7:30 a.m. and finishing at 8:10 a.m. An eyewitness account described a young boy of about 8 years old kneeling in a trench and crying, turning to one of the guards before being shot. Victims typically included alleged communists, saboteurs, and murderers, where the killings were well documented by UN forces and observers. The South Korean government continued to deny accusations that any wrongdoing had taken place. The international community responded to the outrage to news of the mass executions in the South. Globally, there were calls for the re-regime to immediately halt the executions. Most reports suggest UN forces reacted with disgust to the mass executions. One British soldier reported that ROK soldiers proceeded to execute prisoners a mere 150 feet from their camp. He was forced to walk away when they began executing children during breakfast as it upset him. UN commanders were particularly concerned that their association with the regime would undermine their mission in Korea but did little to investigate the killings officially. Ray responded by pledging to end all mass executions of prisoners and promised to mitigate death sentences for communists. While he gave assurances to the United Nations leaders that the killings would stop and there would be uh, thorough investigations and court marshalling for guilty parties, it is difficult to assess if the executions continued out of eyesight of Western observers afterwards. While mass executions and arrests were common throughout the Korean War, the December massacres put increased international pressure and criticism on the re regime. North Korean forces were also guilty of committing large-scale atrocities throughout the war. One such instance of June 1950 resulted in the murder of over 700 wounded soldiers, medical staff, and civilians in the Seoul National University Hospital Massacre. Other such incidents, notably the Bloody Gulch Massacre, chiefly targeted soldiers but were particularly gruesome. Captured soldiers were routinely rounded up and shot in the head or machine-gunned to death. The back-and-forth nature of the atrocities fueled the opposing side's propaganda machines for the duration of the war and needs to be understood in context. Reports of mass executions continued to damage the legitimacy of the South Korean government and the UN-occupying forces and in turn the credibility of the United Nations intervention entirely. Mass executions generally declined following the December massacres, but the Rae regime further cemented its heavy-handed image. The massacres made easy political propaganda for the communist forces and were used to denounce the regime in the South for years to come by the North. And now jumping up, because I know I could fill out a book with the Vietnamese war crimes that probably occurred on December from both sides on the many different parties, the many different factions and organizations, armies, etc. that existed during the time of the Vietnam War. Um, but I will jump forward to more obscure obscure conflicts, of which they're just as important, because human lives are as important, no matter the nationality, and no matter if it's a American-centric or American-included worldview, although you'd be hard-pressed to find any geopolitical situation or war or conflict that does not include American interference, American funding, or American um, contextual pressures or influences, etc., um, either by forces allied or sympathetic to the West and allies opposed or enemies directly to the West, etc., being um, overtly present, say, like in the In Niger, you have Boko Haram. Boko Haram is ISIS. ISIS is created because of Wahhabism, which is funded by the West and created in opposition to the West, etc. But then you have that operating without American context, like, say, in Nigeria or etc. So, while I'd be hard-pressed to find conflicts that don't have American connections to them, these are two war crimes, and I will include a third um, war crime in Myanmar, that occurred just this year, um, in December, as a third-party audio source as well. But these occurred in Africa and in Serbia. Serbia. I'm trying to get them chronologically lined up. I believe the Serbians are chronologically sooner. Okay, so qualifying for war crimes of Christmas, we have the... 158 Serbs who were murdered on Christmas Day in 1993. Let me read you this article. Continuing the ethnic cleansing and destruction of everything that belonged to the Serbs, which began properly in April 1992, the Muslim forces from Srebrenica. Serbanica, assisted by units from Bratanak, Vlasenik, and Zvornik areas, broke into the village of Kravika on Orthodox Christmas Day in 1993, killing 49 and wounding 80 Serbian civilians and soldiers. Seven persons went missing, five of whom have never been found, not even 23 years later. Two women were amongst them. On that day in Kravika, and the surrounding villages, 688 Serb-owned houses, 2,000 auxiliary, and 27 public facilities were looted and torched. Approximately 1,000 persons went homeless in a single day and made it to the Drina River through the snowdrifts, avoiding certain death. Many were carrying their children in their arms, and 101 children lost one or both parents. Since the beginning of the war until mid-1995, the Muslim forces from Srebrenica kept constantly breaking into Serbian villages around here, Bratanak, Milici, Skilani, and Zivonik, killing everything they got a hold of, looting and burning Serbian property. The captured ones were tortured, massacred, beheaded, and their heads were being showed off in Srebrenica. This was a case of Nenad Rankic, who was roasted on a spit. Out of 50 Serbs who remained in Srebrenica, only one elderly woman survived, while the other one, Ivanka Markovic, was found slaughtered on the doorstep in July 1995. Most of the missing persons have not yet been found or exhumed. The units of Nasser Oric expelled and executed the Serb populations from Srebrenica and surrounding villages Dugopolje, Prasista, Kovitschkika, Gostilija, Genoena, Azredak, Vjogor, Studenak, and others at the beginning of the war. Afterwards, they began to break into remote villages of Srebrenica and Botanak, which was Ratkavici, Brazani, Magasici, Zagoni, Zalazje, Sasi, Belezhaka, Fokovici, Bezhalovic, Shikaroc, Predravani, before they broke into Gravica and committed massacres on January 7th and scaling on January 16th of 1993, in which 114 Serbs were murdered, majority of whom were civilians. Even after declaring Srebrenica a U.N. safe zone and allegedly demilitarization of the Muslim forces, raiding Serb villages from the enclave continued. So except three villages along the Drana River, all the Serb villages in Srebrenica and a large number of villages in the Bratonic Municipality, which include more than 100 villages, were destroyed and Nasser Oryx units killed 3,000 total Serbs, most of them civilians. Attacks and massacres usually occurred on great orthodox holidays such as Christmas, St. Peter's Day, and St. George's Day. No one has ever been brought to justice for the crimes against the Serbian population that has been known as the Christmas Massacre. This is recorded in the book written by the former SDA official, Ibran Mastafik, called Planned Chaos. Quote-unquote, Planned Chaos is the book. Talking about the 158 Serbs that were massacred on Christmas in 1993. And then in 2009, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, between December 2008 and January 2009, villages would again be attacked and killed, as history often repeats just in different places in the world on Christmas in an attack that would be known as the Christmas Massacres. Christmas massacres of the Congo. Quote, the LRA were quick at killing. It did not take them very long and they said nothing while they were doing it. They killed all 26 people in my family. I was horrified. I knew all these people. They were my family, my friends, my neighbors. When they finished, I slipped away and went to my home where I sat trembling all over. This was said by a 72-year-old man who hid in the bushes and watched as the LRA rebel group killed his family on Christmas Day in Batande, Congo, near Daruma. He is one of only a handful of people still alive from his village. I cry every day for her. I can't imagine what it's like to have your daughter taken from you. It makes me ill when I think about what they, the LRA, could be doing to her in the bush. I don't know if I'll ever see her again or even if she's still alive. This was said by a mother whose 13-year-old daughter was taken from her arms by the LRA on the September 2008-December Christmas Massacre. In late December 2008 and into January 2009, the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, brutally killed more than 865 civilians and abducted at least 160 children in Northern Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. LRA combatants hacked their victims to death with machetes or axes or crushed their skulls with clubs and heavy sticks. In some of the places where they are attacked, few were left alive. The worst attacks happened in a 48-hour period over Christmas in locations some 160 miles apart in the Daruma, Duru, and Foreji areas of hat Ule district of northern Congo. The LRA waited until the time of Christmas festivities to begin on December 24th and 25th to carry out their devastating attacks, apparently choosing a moment when they would find the maximum number of people all together in their homes. The killings occurred not just in Congo, but also in parts of the southern Sudan where similar kinds of weapons and tactics were used. The Christmas massacres in Congo are part of a long-standing practice of horrific atrocities and abuse by the LRA. Before shifting its operations to the Congo in 2006, the LRA was based in Uganda in southern Sudan, where LRA combatants also killed, raped, and abducted thousands of civilians. When the LRA moved to Congo, its combatants initially refrained from targeting Congolese people. But in September 2008, the LRA began its first wave of attacks, apparently to punish local communities who had helped LRA defectors to escape. The first wave of attacks in September together with the Christmas massacres has led to the deaths of over 1,033 civilians and the abduction of at least 476 children. Human Rights Watch continues to receive regular reports of murders and abductions by the LRA, keeping civilians living in terror. According to the United Nations, over 140,000 people fled their homes since late December 2008 to seek safety elsewhere. The LRA may choose such moments to strike again as they did with such devastating efficiency over Christmas. By, even by LRA standards, the Christmas massacres in Congo were especially brutal. LRA combatants struck quickly and quietly, surrounding their victims as they ate their Christmas meal in the Botande village or as they gathered for a Christmas Day concert in the Faraji. In Mabando village, the LRA sought to maximize the death toll by luring their victims to a central place, playing the radio, and forcing their victims to sing songs and to call for others to come join a party. In most of the attacks, they tied up their victims, stripped them of their clothing, raped the women and girls on sight, and then killed their victims by crushing their skulls. In two cases, the attackers tried to kill three-year-old toddlers by twisting off their heads with their bare hands. The few villagers who survived often did so because their assailants thought they were dead. The widespread, virtually simultaneous, coordinated nature of the attacks as well as the similar means used to kill the victims points to a coordinated operation carried out under orders from a single command structure. Captured LRA combatants interviewed by Human Rights Watch said that LRA leader Joseph Kony himself ordered attacks on civilians beginning in September of 2008 at a time when Kony was still promising to sign the peace accords. An LRA spokesman contacted by Human Rights Watch denied all responsibility for the attacks, saying they had been carried out by Ugandan soldiers pretending to be LRA combatants. Human Rights Watch found no evidence to support this assertion. Under international law, individuals who commit order or plan murder, rape, torture, abductions or use child soldiers during armed conflict are responsible and guilty for war crimes. And it keeps going on, but I don't think that's enough to summarize that event and its horror. Known as the Christmas Massacres. And like I said, even though there are many things going on around the world all the time, we now have three major war zones. Well... We could say three new major war zones, excluding the major war zones of Mexico, which have been going on, you know, for 20 years, et cetera, and which are more organized crime war zones, um, which will always be hostile and, and dangerous. But now those three new war zones are um, Russia and the Ukraine. You have... Um, the Israel and the um, Gaza situation with the Middle East and its Iran backers, including Yemen in the Red Strait, which is also I would consider uh, both. I guess you call it Saudi Arabian Peninsula and African theater of war that Red Sea area, as well as the Myanmar jungle warfare that is going on, which is new which escalated from a military junta to absolute fucking uh, jungle warfare. And I will include that without getting into it, but there was a massacre in December recently where uh, a roadblock was set up. Civilians are claimed to have been forced to wear military uniforms, then killed, tortured with their hands behind their back, and then burnt. Cremated inside their vehicles, with a fire so hot that it was uh, visible from a NASA satellite that measures forest fires, and well documented. And I will include a third-party source for that. Then my Amnar. and I will read also this article from Fida al-Kedra, the Electronic Intifada. Published September, or published, sorry, the 17th of December, 2021. Published 17th of December, 2021. Israel's war criminals spread fake cheer at Christmas. This is not 2023. This is not because of what's been going on after that. This is not. A piece of that war's propaganda. This is a part of just the situation that's going on in Gaza and Palestine. Bethlehem is under military occupation by Israel, with cooperation from the Palestinian authorities. Israel's military frequently poses as humanitarian organization, so it came as little surprise that it recently sought to turn an announcement about Christmas celebrations into goodwill gesture. In reality, the announcement reinforced what every Palestinian knows. Israel dictates what they can and cannot do. For Christians, that includes deciding where they spend Christmas. If Israel keeps its word, up to 500 Christians living in Gaza may visit the West Bank, which is also under Israeli military occupation. They can then spend part of the festive season in Bethlehem, where Jesus Christ is believed to have been born. The Israeli announcement, similar to ones made in previous years, is far from altruistic. Because a limit is placed on the number of people who may travel to Bethlehem, such announcements have the effect that family members either spend Christmas apart from each other or that trips to Bethlehem do not go ahead. It is unusual for a whole family to get approval for travel to Bethlehem, said Kamal Ayad, a spokesman for Church of St. Perphorus in Gaza. Sometimes the Israeli authorities will only grant approval to one or two members of a family. That means the family is forced to cancel their travel plans entirely. At more than 700, the number of applications for travel permits quickly exceeded the quota set by Israel. Everyone should be granted the permit, said Ayad. We all have the right to freedom of movement and freedom of worship. Special Feelings Palestinian Christians have long been placed under considerable strain by the Occupation. Many have grown so frustrated with Israel's relentless brutality that they have immigrated elsewhere. In Gaza, the number of Christians has fallen from approximately 3,000 in 2010 to only 1,000 now. Hani Farah, a prominent figure in the YMCA's Gaza branch, is among those who have applied for a permit to visit Bethlehem. He is still waiting to hear whether or not his application is successful. I love to pray at the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, he said. It is a special feeling. After a major Israeli attack, he is hoping that all his family will be permitted to visit Bethlehem his, this Christmas. Being only 75 kilometers from Gaza, accessing the city should be relatively easy with the benefit of modern transportation. Yet to have any chance of reaching Bethlehem, it's the first necessary, a necessary, a necessary to exit Erez, a checkpoint separating Gaza and Israel. And that's only permissible with permission from the occupying Israeli army. Israel's coordinator of government activities in the territories known as the COGAT, that body is now headed by a general named Gashan Aliyan. He used to be a commander of the Golani Brigade, an elite unit within Israeli's military. Led by Alian, the Golani Brigade committed a massacre at the Shuyaia neighborhood of Gaza City during July of 2014. With officially 55 Palestinian civilians, 19 of them children, under the age of 16, were killed in that massacre. This means that decisions about how Gaza's people may live their lives are rubber-stamped by a man who has committed war crimes in Gaza. Far from being punished, Alian has been promoted and in many ways continues his repressive control over the Gazans. Qadir Terazi, 23, visited Bethlehem just once when he was a small child. Every year I have submitted an application for a permit, he said. It is rejected for reasons that are not known to me. Israel typically rejects most requests from permits to visit Bethlehem at Christmas. In 2019, around 9 around 800 requests were made from Christians in Gaza. Israel granted slightly more than 300 permits, less than half. While Gaza may not be synonymous with Christians cheer, those spending the festive season here try their best to have a good time. Florence Courier was one of the guests at a party earlier this month organized by a YMCA event in Gaza City. She said, We love life despite all of Israel's darkness. This is an article written in 2021 by Christians who live in Palestine, which will illustrate further the ongoing decades, the normalization of war crimes, and the unpunished status of the elite of the occupying military nation of Israel that commits these war crimes do be promoted inside higher parts of authority inside their ruling structure to continue to rule against the people that they are committing war crimes against, which is supported by the United States, which is recognized by the United States, which is welcomed and, and uh, encouraged by the United States, as well as its allies in England and abroad in the EU, etc., that... Um, the U.N. is powerless to bring these people at, at, to heal, to bring these people um, to charge, to be punished, to bring these people to justice because of military threat, because of the force of arms, and because of the political gerrymandering that the United States has over the U.N. And then you see that this is not a classic because I've in the last couple of war crimes, most of the war crimes I've been talking about have just been massacres, just been murders, just been the right unwanted slaughter of both civilian and um, combatant. But this is the control, the seizure, and in essence, the um, the destruction of sites that have no military strategic value, that are of religious cultural and historical significance that are um, used by civilians that are non-combatants in any definition of the word. I don't think Christian Palestinians are in Hamas. I don't think Christian Palestinians who work for the YMCA are Muslim extremists. Uh, I don't think they're anti-Semitic if they live in Palestine and want to go to Bethlehem and have been living in Palestine despite the oppression, despite the apartheid state that exists. That there is no transparency and the factors that are used to decide who qualifies for membership. That there is no transparency or uh, democracy or um, any kind of uh, veto power or voting power by the average everyday person to who rules them, who rules this process, who decides this process even has to exist. And if people are seen as hostile and otherwise unqualified or unpermitted at security risk to travel to places of worship, are places of worship now considered military strategic in importance in the holy land, quote-unquote holy land? That's a question I ask you. A lot of these are not just the straight-up massacres. We've all come to know and hate. A lot of these are much more subtle than that. And like I said, if we wanted to go retroactively, we could even include moments that have happened around Christmas in the December month that could be qualified as war crimes that even in America we have beloved and engraved in our cultural memories as iconic moments of courage and heroism. For example, in 1776, George Washington crossed the Delaware River. As we know it, in 1776, General Washington led his troops across a 300-yard stretch of the Delaware River in the dead of night between December 25th and 26th. The surprise move would put Washington's men at 16 miles away from a garrison of Hessians, German mercenaries hired by the British to help them retain a hold on the rebelling colonies. This was the Continental Army's surprise attack. The Hessians quickly surrendered at the Battle of Trenton just 90 minutes into the firefight against Washington's 2,400 soldiers. This would be the first of two rebel victories in New Jersey, the other being the Battle of Princeton a week later, as the Continental Army regained control of the colony. This effectively reversed the British drive that had pushed the rebels across the state in a previous month The daring crossing of the Delaware ended up being one of the turning points of the Revolutionary War. Now, this is something that you're like, oh, well, this is an American hero, right? This is an American, um, you know, uh, victory, right? How could this be a war crime? Well breaking it down to the actual agreed upon orders of war at the time, the context of the war that was being fought, and I know it's against the British, the occupying, occupying um, force, right? And if you want to make it a, a minority occupying force argument that anything is permissible, I mean, that, that makes sense, that's logical to do. Can't fault you on that. completely justifiable. understand why you would want to do that. But scholars, besides myself, have argued that the crossing of the Delaware was illegal in terms of war, the laws of war, the rules of war. Let me just pull up this article right here. I have it saved in my files. Although the article is more based on the ungentlemanly nature of warfare that George Washington was famous for and how this is in keeping in context with him being likened to an insurgent or rebel leader, such as an Al-Qaeda freedom fighter or Mujahideen, in which he used unconventional attacks, surprise attacks, ungentlemanly warfare much to the pain in the ass of the European continental gentlemanly officers who he once owed loyalty to. And of course, it could be argued back and forth that the Hessians, being German mercenaries, were part of the British war crimes, including the ravaging and sacking of the local farmlands. And the first The forced quartering, which means living with, or living inside civilians' houses. If they have a family, guess what? Their daughter then has to live with this soldier. You know nothing about, is from Germany, and now is armed. You have to welcome him, feed him, provide him with bedding, etc., to do his laundry. Provide him quartering. And it's randomly selected based on just the government being like, we need uh, places to stay, take these houses. So there's a lot of back and forth. Who was committing the war crimes back then? But that would retroactively qualify. Now, that being said, there is a definite historical war crime that occurred on Christmas Day in American war history that happened on 1863, 157 years ago. Christmas Day will mark the anniversary of the Wilson Massacre that occurred in Whipley County, Missouri, on Christmas Day in 1863, part of a bitter rivalry between members of the 15th Missouri Cavalry, the CSA, commanded by Colonel Timothy Reeves, and the 3rd Missouri State Militia Cavalry, the USA, commanded by Major James Wilson. The massacre was quote-unquote payback for an event that happened just days before on December 21st, 1863, when men from Reeves's command captured 102 Union soldiers in Centerville, Missouri. They were taken back to Confederate Colonial, uh, Colonel Timothy Reeves' encampment, whereas some say they were going to be used to exchange for Confederate prisoners. It wasn't an ordinary Confederate encampment, though. On Christmas Day, it was the site of a Christmas gathering, which included not only Confederate soldiers, but their families as well. No doubt Reeves and his men thought they would be safe, as Christmas has always been recognized as a holy day, even in war, throughout the American and European civilizations. Once again, apparently not uh, not to George Washington. Remember, it's not technically a war crime, but it was extremely ungentlemanly, unorthodox behavior to attack on Christmas Day. Union Major James Wilson had been notified of the capture of the Union militia members at Centerville, Missouri, shortly after the event and immediately set out to hunt down his men's captors. Wilson, with a contingent of 200 cavalrymen, arrived at Reeves' camp just as the men and their families were eating dinner, with their arms stacked. A mere 35 men were remained armed, acting as guards. It is believed that 35 men of Reeves' command were killed during the attack along with most of the civilians present. In September 1864, Major Wilson was captured at the Battle of Pilot Knob, Missouri and deliberately kept under guard until Reeves and his men could catch up to the main force of the Confederates who were at this time heading west. When Reeves did, did catch up with the column, Major Wilson along with five other men of the 3rd Missouri State Militia Cavalry were executed. Detractors say a massacre never happened and that Wilson was a hero for rescuing the 100 Union militia members being held prisoner by Reeves, but a careful analysis of Major Wilson's military records points to a different conclusion. For instance, a month after the event on January 1864, Major James Wilson was up for a promotion, but it was passed over. He was passed over for promotion again on February 1864. Wilson was then transferred to another unit on a recruiting assignment, but was reprimanded and sent back to his former unit, the 3rd MSM Cavalry. If his actions were heroic and not innocent civilians were killed in the attack, as detractors claim, then he would have been promoted for his heroic efforts. Additionally, at the time of his surrender in 1865, Colonel Timothy Reeves was the only one out of 10,000 men who was not paroled and sent home. Instead, he was sent to the St. Louis military prison to await execution for the killing of Major Wilson. For reasons which have never been explained, Reeves remained in St. Louis for one month, at which time he was mysteriously paroled and released to go home. I have carefully documented this story throughout the course of 14 years of painstaking research. The final result is 308 pages of military records, newspaper archives, personal accounts of atrocities and interviews with former slaves who were present, all of which documented one of the worst war crimes of the Civil War between the states and the cover-up which followed. So as we see, there is no shortage of war crimes in Christmas as there are no shortage of battles, massacres, attacks, and military campaigns that occur from all peoples and all nations and all corners of the world in every decade and every era. And if there is something holy about the December Christmas season, it does not protect the innocent from the evil one. Rather, it adds evidence to the fact that December is a dark and evil month, a month of For the veil between the living and the dead is thinnest. And dying is easy. Killing is easy. As well as the ignoring of the dead. But because of the sheer amount of death and ghosts wandering hungry spirits it is impossible to ignore As each year, the men who have failed to learn from the past and those that have learned all too well of the evils of human nature doom themselves to repeat the same massacres on Christmas over and over and over again. regardless of their society or culture, even practices or recognizes Christmas as a holiday, as it is and was for Israel, for the Serbian Muslims, or for the Imperial Shinto Japanese, as I've just discussed. And these are only a drop in a Ocean in the entirety of the history of the world for war crimes, massacres, and otherwise organized evils committed by nations against the civilians, the Lillum of the field. On this of the blackest month and the calendar year, December. One can't help but notice that in the times of war, the doors of Janus' temple were open. And Hecate Is the goddess of sorceries and chaos. The two fundamental elements of war itself. Sorcery and chaos. I've included a number of third-party sources now to listen to at the end of this for your enjoyment, as well as the ratification, the, the backup to what I'm saying to give you that kind of like, well, you know, sharing my research, sharing this as part of the audio experience so that you can hear the seriousness in these articles and this news yourself, as well as further details, specifics, facts, figures, other incredible historical uh, necessities to add reality to it all. So thank you all very much. Hope you enjoy. First audio is going to be uh, Goodwill Towards Men, the MGM cartoon. That's going to play for eight minutes. And then it's going to be a number of historical uh, subjects, uh, but I just covered, et cetera, from third-party sources for your education. Thank you very much. God bless you and your families. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. as Thank you. God bless you. You can either stick around. Patience. Peace out.
2: Preached. Who? Oh, them men. Men? What are men? Yeah,
3: what are they? <laughs> I guess that was before your time, boys. Well, there ain't no more men in the world. No, nope. no more men. But as I remember, well, they was awful-looking things. Some of them would scuttle along on their hind legs some of them would slither along on their bellies. They wore big iron pots on their heads. Their eyes flashed. And they had tremendous snouts. Snouts like this that curled down and fastened onto their stomachs.
2: Gee, I'm sure glad there ain't no more men in the world. Gosh, me too. No.
3: Nope. I never could figure out them men. They was always thinking up new ways to kill each other. They had guns that shot out streams of liquid fire. Everything it touched burst into flames. And they had pipes, big ones like giant pea shooters that sent bombs of wisdom through the air. Then they thought up a new kind of gun. A gun that could kill men faster than ever before. Uh, it was a terrible thing. They were always fighting. And when they weren't fighting on the ground, they were fighting in the air. Blowing up whole city. The other one was dropping a bomb over there. That were left and gathered in the ruins of a church. I was just a little shaver at the time, and I asked the wise old owl what that book was he was reading. Well, he says, looks like a book of rules that belong to them men. Thou shalt not Love thy neighbor as thyself. Hmm. Looks like some pretty good rules, but I guess them men didn't pay much attention to them. Yes, it was a good book of rules, and it still is a good book of rules. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these words... Depend the future of us all. Merry
2: Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All together
1: now.
4: second world war was japan a victim or an aggressor in the second world war a non-japanese person would most likely answer that japan was an aggressor on the other hand a japanese person would probably say that she was a victim how come japanese and foreign people have a different perspective on the same event the answer to this question is japanese revisionism When Japan invaded China on July 7, 1937, they committed a series of war crimes, such as forced labor and sexual assault on women and young girls. Japan denies all these events, but to what extent? The Japanese state has never apologized for the rape of Nanking, a massacre in the then Chinese capital city by the Japanese army who killed 300,000 people and raped 80,000 women in only a month. In fact, the Japanese government does not even acknowledge that the massacre ever happened. In the official website of the Japanese government, they have a section dedicated to the country's rich history. They have 178 articles talking about the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, 56 articles talking about Pearl Harbor, and 4 articles about the Tripartite Act but zero articles about the Nanking Massacre. In 1990, Shintaro Ishihara, the governor of Tokyo, formally denied the Nanking Massacre. In an interview with the American magazine Playboy, he claimed that according to Japanese sources, the massacre never happened. People say that the Japanese made a holocaust there, but that is not true. It is a story made up by the Chinese. However, the Japanese did not always deny the massacre. When Japan took over Nanking, news about the atrocities stamped the front page of newspapers in Tokyo, and the population was prideful over their wartime actions. Denial of the massacre only began after the West started to criticize Japan for its actions, and the cover-up of the facts became even more significant after the rise of Japan's right-wing party in 1972. Since then, Japan has seen many other nationalistic leaders ruling the country, like Shinzo Abe. These leaders have never openly talked about the massacre. The nationalistic view of politicians on this event reflects on what is taught to the Japanese citizens. When Japan opened the National Museum of World War II in Chiyoda, most outsiders were shocked by the biased content found inside the museum. In there, the Nanking Massacre is not mentioned. Instead, they focus on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Another well-known example of biased and misleading sources put up by the Japanese government to its citizens are school textbooks. In 1982, the Japanese Ministry of Education headed the campaign to rewrite the events of World War II in the history books. Since then, most school textbooks censor the truth about the massacre. Words such as aggression have been replaced by advancing in and out. In many textbooks, the massacre is still referred to as an incident. In those textbooks, historians talk about how the death toll claimed by the Chinese is a great exaggeration, stating it was between 13,000 and 20,000 people when it was in reality... 300,000. The publisher of Japan's authorized history textbooks described the Nanking Massacre as communist propaganda. Japan went as far as sending diplomats to other countries to demand that authors and publishers change what they had written about the Nanking Massacre in books and school textbooks. This new program began during the Abe administration. This proves that Japan's biased and revisionistic views of the event are not evolving. Not only school textbooks are censored. In the film The Last Emperor, the film's distribution company in Japan, removed a scene depicting the Nanking Massacre because it was too gruesome and would not serve the morale of the country. Another common example is the censorship of Iris Chang's famous book The Rape of Nanking. The book was censored because critics said the images were fabricated and the content was false and fictitious. The book was only translated to Japanese 10 years after it was first written. The government is not the only entity trying to hide the facts. This massacre is kept secret by various sectors of society. The managers of NHK, Japan's biggest TV channel, openly deny the massacre the CEO of the largest hotel chain in Japan, APA Hotels, wrote a book that is found in all the 32,600 rooms of his hotels called The Real History of Japan. In this book, he talks about the fabrication of the massacre and states that all the killings that happened in Nanking were carried out by the Chinese. Those who try to speak out against the revisionism are threatened. Tamaki Matsuoko, a history teacher who has produced the documentary Torn Memories of Nanking, said she has suffered intimidations and threats from extremists. Unlike Nazi Germany, Japan was not pressured by the Allies to convict war criminals. The IMTFE, the tribunal responsible for convicting Japanese war criminals, had many flaws. For instance, major players in the event such as Prince Asaka, one of the commanders of the Japanese forces in Nanking, were granted immunity. Nazi Germany had tens of thousands of war criminals convicted, whereas Japan only had 25. The IMTFE was eventually canceled, as the U.S. wanted to ally with Japan after the Chinese Communist Revolution. Still today, there are no efforts by the Japanese government to try to arrest Japanese war criminals. Japan took a different path from its then ally Germany, who acknowledged all of its war crimes and apologized to the Jewish people. Japan's revisionism is a concept that has been hurting Japan's relationship with its neighbors for the past century. China and Japan, for example, still have poor diplomatic ties, and a large percentage of Chinese hate Japan. This incorrect and biased view of the war is hurting Japanese society.
5: B Wen was contacted by the family of one of the soldiers shown in this photograph. We now know that this is Arno Bohm a German soldier standing alongside British troops from the London Rifle Brigade. They're standing together in the middle of no man's land during the Christmas truce of 1914. This photograph captures a moment so unusual in the First World War that many people at the time, and to this day, believed it to be a myth. In the midst of a brutal, total war, how did this momentary peace come about? What impact did it have in the course of the First World War? And
3: why did it never happen again? We were in the front line. We were about 300 yards from the Germans. And we had, I think, on Christmas Eve, we'd been singing carols and this, that, and the other. And the Germans had been doing the same. And we'd been shouting to each other Sometimes rude remarks, more often just joking remarks. Eventually, a German said, tomorrow you no shoot, we no shoot.
5: At the start of the war, many believed it would all be over by Christmas. However, by December that year, it was obvious that this was not the case, and thousands of families and soldiers were facing a Christmas of separation, grief and hardship.
6: So for those soldiers who were in the trenches over winter 1914, the conditions would have gotten gradually worse and worse. you got a lot of rain, a lot of frost, and the general living conditions would have been terrible.
5: But the British troops were not alone. In the trenches opposite theirs, sometimes only 30 yards away across the strip of no-man's land, were German soldiers in the exact same situation.
6: There was lots of opportunity for each side to communicate with the other, and this was a regular thing which happened right from the start of trench warfare Um, but communication would often be in the form of soldiers from one side shouting over insults to those in the other trenches. But what was interesting at Christmas is that both sides actually started to communicate in more friendly terms. It really began with the Germans singing Christmas carols and setting up Christmas trees uh, on top of their parapets. So they came to very much empathise with one another. I remember very well Christmas. I remember the
3: Christmas day when the German and the French soldiers left their trenches, went to the barbed wire between them with champagne and cigarettes in their hands and uh, had feelings of fraternization and uh, shouted they wanted to finish the war. And that lasted only two days, one and a half really. And then strict order came that no fraternization was allowed and we had to stay back in our trenches.
5: Christmas truce varied in different parts of the front line. Ceasefires were hastily arranged, sometimes to enable the collection and burial of bodies or to allow the trenches to be repaired. In other cases, the soldiers simply enjoyed fraternising with the other side.
3: And uh, we shared fags, goodies with the Germans. And then from somewhere, somehow, this football appeared. Was it a proper football? It was a proper football. But we didn't form a team. It wasn't a team here in any sense of the word. You know, it was a kicker's house. Everybody was having a go. came from their side. It wasn't from our side where the How many people were taking part, do you think? Well, I should think there'd be at least a couple of hundred. Did you pick the ball? Oh, yes, I did it. I was pretty good then, 19.
5: <laughs> but while some parts of the front line were playing football and swapping stories, Others were confused by what they heard or felt no inclination to socialise with those they had so recently been fighting.
6: After a few moments, there were lighted objects raised above the German parapet. The Germans were shouting over to our trench. There's no doubt about that at all. And before we could take any action or do anything, we were ordered to open rapid fire, you see, which we did. The Germans did not reply to our rapid fire. They simply carried on with their celebrations and were having a a very fine time indeed. They certainly were not going to do it anymore. They thought that we were idiots, I suppose. We were were not us, but the command, you see. The way that trench warfare was organised in the First World War, each sector was very distinctive. And so you wouldn't necessarily know what was happening in the sector next door to you and you do get stories of one area of the front where they're experiencing a truce but then suddenly they get fired on by the troops in the next sector who don't realise what's happening.
5: For those soldiers not involved the truce must have seemed unbelievable and even more so for those back home. For months the media and government propaganda had shaped a perception of German soldiers as bloodthirsty enemies, baby eaters, devils, ruthless killers. But news of the remarkable Christmas truce soon spread abroad. By the end of December, letters and photos arrived home and newspapers began to publish accounts of the truce.
3: My father was delighted to have a giving such a description of events, and he sent it up sent them up to the Daily Telegraph. I got him to fight for a Rocket. That showed up that it must have been me who wrote it, and he got hold me, gave me an awful dressing down for daring to write to the press. But of course I didn't. Mm.
5: These photographs were taken on personal cameras that some soldiers had taken with them into the trenches. Photography in the trenches was discouraged for obvious reasons but during the Christmas truce of 1914 soldiers on both sides of the trenches could not resist the opportunity to document such a unique event. At
6: the beginning of January 1915 the newspapers suddenly start printing these letters and To begin with, there was a certain amount of disbelief, but then over time, suddenly photographs started to appear as well. And by that time, the evidence was clear that this did happen. It wasn't a myth. And the media at the time absolutely loved it. There were lots of discussions in the newspapers about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. And, you know, in a way, it's a wonderful snapshot of Christmas 1914 when attitudes were still slightly naive um, because the war had only really just begun. You find that in 1915 and onwards the war becomes almost a much more serious endeavour.
5: The Christmas truce would come to be remembered as something of a blip in the regular conduct of the war. It conflicted with the patriotic aggression required by both sides. It also served to highlight the great contrast between war and religion. How can you fight a war of aggression while also celebrating Christmas, the traditional time for peace and goodwill? For those reasons, the Christmas truce was increasingly seen as unimportant and awkward to fit into the standard narrative of the First World War.
6: You never get anything like the Christmas truce happening again. And over time, not only is it seen as an anomaly, but almost as a myth and it gets to the point where people are actually doubting whether it happened in the first place, which continues, you know, right up to this day, so there's still a lot of confusion about whether there was a football match played and things like this. We
3: didn't cross to France until March of 1915, but I, although it would be arrogant to say that the thing didn't actually take place, I very much doubt whether... Anything of the nature or magnitude that has been claimed for it took place at all. Now, the purpose of that barbed wire and the trenches was to keep each side in its own place. Therefore, why would anybody try to break that? And if anybody tried, what were the NCOs doing? What were the officers doing? I think the whole thing borders on the fairy tale and may be classed with the Russians with snow on their boots and the angels of Mons.
6: We know by looking at uh, German newspapers that Christmas Truce was covered there in a very similar way to how it was in Britain. In the 1920s and the 1930s, you see definite examples of how the Christmas Truce changes in its depiction because there was a much greater emphasis then on the German soldier as a hero uh, fighting a noble war whereas the Christmas Truce conflicts with that to a degree. So in Germany in particular, the Christmas Truce goes out of favour definitely in the 20s and 30s. Whereas in Britain, it continues to be a popular celebrated story as, as part of the First World War.
5: The letters and photographs that reached home in Britain confirmed that this remarkable event had indeed taken place, but it was one that was not to be repeated.
6: The Christmas truce was unique, and nothing like it happened again to that scale. And the reasons for this are varied. Immediately after the truce, the high command of both sides stepped in to make sure that fraternisation and ceasefires like this would not happen in the same way. But also, in the long term, the real reason that truces like this didn't happen is that the war changed in the way in which it was being fought. As the war progressed, there's a more centralized method of command. Those in the front line would have been forced into constant aggression. You would have had artillery and trench mortar units constantly going. And also, of course, as the war progressed, it took a far nastier turn. So you get things like gas warfare introduced, an increasing number of civilian casualties. Uh, you also get incidents like sinking of the Lusitania, The temptation, I suppose, to empathise with the enemy and the desire to fraternise with them changed dramatically from 1915 onwards.
5: It can be argued that the Christmas truce made little difference to the course of the First World War, but it would be remembered as a crucial moment in history. The truce has featured in films, television programmes, inspired songs and even featured in adverts. It's become part of the symbolism used when discussing the First World War, as synonymous with that conflict as poppies, mud and war poets. This unique event has become legendary, in part because the idea of peace at Christmas in such an unlikely place is an irresistible story. But its enduring legacy is also due to these incredible photographs and the interviews from those who were there, documenting an event that to so many still seems wholly unbelievable. Thanks for watching Siobhan Robbins contains images of violence and dead bodies
7: this is the story of a massacre in Myanmar of at least 37 people brutally killed on Christmas Eve majority Christian community looking forward to the holidays now the site of one of the worst mass killings since the military coup the military government says those who died were suspected terrorists but others claim they were just ordinary people among the dead two charity workers a disabled man at least one child So what happened on that day? This is Myanmar. A country torn apart by violence since last February's coup. On one side... The military or junta who, claiming electoral fraud, overthrew the government and took control. On the other, protesters, armed groups and militias fighting to restore democracy. The Christmas Eve killings happened in Kaya State in eastern Myanmar. It's an area which has seen some of the most intense fighting between rebels and military. To piece together what happened, our teams in Thailand, Myanmar and London, with investigators from Myanmar Witness, have analysed images and tracked down family members and witnesses.
2: I have never seen anything like
6: this in my entire life. People tied up and killed.
7: Among those who died is a 28-year-old named Lira. His siblings describe him as a hard-working family guy. They also tell us his left hand isn't fully formed. It's an important detail. We'll come back to that later. At around 8am on Christmas Eve, Lira leaves his home on his motorbike for the final time. He's off to buy a car with a friend. At 10am, the junta says soldiers begin stopping vehicles on this road. It's the one Lira's thought to be travelling on. Four members of the junta allied border guard force are sent to investigate... At 10.56, a man, Kuke Nyar, starts taking photos of people fleeing a nearby village. They've heard gunfire. Soon after, local militia films and later releases this. It's the earliest footage our team has found of the site. Analysis of the shadows by experts at Myanmar Witness suggests it was filmed around 11.30am. A car belonging to two Save the children's staff is burning... Three trucks carrying fuel are beginning to smoke, but haven't yet burst into flames, suggesting the fire started fairly recently. Shortly after, they explode. By 1.19, the fires are big enough to be picked up by NASA's fire detection satellite. You've got it. Around 10 minutes later, a rebel unit reaches the site and films it. The Save the Children car is now burnt out. A few meters away, the rebels tell us they find four dead men. The bodies of the border guards sent earlier to investigate why vehicles were being stopped. Hands tied, They've been shot. And they aren't the only victims. Christmas Day, rebels return and say they find 31 bodies burned beyond recognition. Three bags of body parts are also later collected. Hello, doctor. Can you hear me okay? A doctor who did the post-mortem examinations agreed to speak to us we changed the names and voices of all of the people we spoke to in Myanmar for their protection.
6: The scars were completely smashed, maybe shot with a gun or bitten with something. And in the chest and back, there were some injuries from being stuck with a sharp object. There were bullet holes on the body and most of the bodies were
0: tied up.
7: The level of violence is horrific. The damage to the bodies so extensive, it's hard to know everything that happened before they died. By now, the military has broadcast... The level of violence is horrific. The damage to the bodies so extensive, it's hard to know everything that happened before they died. By now, the military has broadcast its version of events. It says soldiers tried to stop seven vehicles thought to be linked to an alleged terror plot. It claims the people inside attacked with bombs and guns, security forces shot back, then the vehicles caught fire. The military later says it tried to save people. It claims the rebels killed the border guards. It also issues photos of two dead men in military-style uniforms, calling them enemies. But evidence we found raises new questions. 13 days after the massacre the militia says it discovers two bodies in uniforms matching the photo of the so-called enemies near to the site of the fire. One is covered with branches the other hidden by a rock but these photos taken during the post mortem show under the uniforms the men are dressed in civilian clothes Both have been shot, but police tell us there are no bullet holes or even blood on the men's uniforms. And that's not all. In this image from state media, the gun looks unnatural, as if it's been placed on the body for a photo. And there's more. By adjusting the contrast on this photo, our team found the blur fades. This alleged soldier is missing his left hand. It appears to be Lyra, who's not been seen since the attack. We show his family. They believe the junta framed him and dressed him up to make him look like a rebel fighter.
2: They used Lyra's story to stage that he was from the KMPP. They just wanted to clean up the evidence. That's why they put the uniform on Lyra.
7: Our team searched through the photos of the burnt vehicles and found this. The motorbike police confirmed Lira was riding that day. His death was brutal. Two teeth were missing. His skull was beaten and smashed. And there were two bullet holes in the chest. And questions over the deaths of Lira and his friend Kulupe aren't the only ones. The military says armed rebels died while fleeing. So why were so many of the bodies tied up? How can the deaths of two charity workers and a young girl be explained? We put this evidence to the military government. It hasn't responded. We also showed our findings to the UN Human Rights Monitor for <clears throat> Myanmar.
3: The film uh, that I've just seen is just
6: absolutely horrific. Um, And it's unfortunately not uncharacteristic. The Myanmar military are known for this. Again, we need to fully investigate
3: it. But these are all the hallmarks of a war crime.
7: The full scale of what happened here is still unfolding. Police say 40 people have been reported missing. Those responsible for Myanmar's Christmas Eve massacre may never be brought to justice.
8: Siobhan Robbins, Sky News. At 4 a.m. on December 8, 1941, after Japan landed in Malaya, Lieutenant General Takashi Sakai, the Supreme Commander of the Occupying Forces, ordered the bombing of Hong Kong. The college building was turned into an emergency military hospital 17 days later, on Christmas Day, more than 200 Japanese troops stormed the building, killing and raping more than 120 wounded soldiers and medical workers.
0: After entering the building, the Japanese soldiers stopped using guns. They started using bayonets, swords, to kill the wounded soldiers so as to save their bullets. After that, all the medical staff and other female assistants were taken to different rooms, on the second floor, and imprisoned. Then one by one, they were taken out, raped, and tortured to death. The killings continued into the morning of the next day. St. Stephen's College was used by the British as a field hospital. Despite the bright red cross flag on the Sitgul Tower and the huge red cross signs painted on the exterior walls, the Japanese still went on a killing spree.
8: Under the Geneva Conventions, Military operations cannot be carried out in military hospitals. But the Japanese troops disregarded that and committed atrocities against unarmed, wounded soldiers and medical personnel. Why did they do this?
0: On December 23rd or 24th, after capturing Repulse Bay, they started pushing all the way to the Stanley Peninsula. They thought that the soldiers in the peninsula had lost their ability to fight. But after entering the Stanley village, they were caught in a heavy street battle, so they felt they had to do something about the resistance. That's why they increased the intensity of the massacre. As the resistance grew stronger, they wanted to be afraid and to succumb to their invasion.
8: On December 25th, the British troops defending the Stanley Bunker surrendered to the Japanese in an attempt to save hostages. In room 336 of the Peninsula Hotel, Sir Mark Aitchison Young, then governor of Hong Kong, signed the surrender to the Japanese on behalf of British colonial officials. And this day became the Black Christmas in Hong Kong history.
0: On the December 28th, in the 16th year of the Showa era, golden rays were shining down on the afternoon streets. Our troops held a city entering ceremony. Our
8: With the Japanese invasion of the city on December 28th, 1941, Hong Kong was renamed Hung To. Beginning the Japanese occupation period that lasted three years and eight months, Takashi Sakai became Hong Kong's interim ruler as acting governor.